Looking back at some of the other honors, there's the We Met Caddy Scholarship Fund. You must be very proud of that. I'm very proud of that. Uh, that Caddy Fund was organized in 1949, and uh, it has been a source of great satisfaction to me. There's no story that could ever be told that is richer or sweeter than the story of Francis and Eddie. And may your lives Philip and Eagles. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Legacy, the We Met Fun podcast. On today's episode, we are thrilled to welcome on Tom Hines, co-chairman of Collier's International Boston, a full-service commercial real estate firm. Tom joined the firm in 1965, was appointed president in 1988, and chairman in 2007. And through more than 50 years in the industry, Tom has represented a wide array of institutional clients, corporate owners, and large-scale developers in Massachusetts and beyond. He is an active participant in real estate organizations in the greater Boston area, as well as throughout the country. Tom is a Boston native, a graduate of Boston College, and a second-generation Irish-American who is deeply proud of his Irish roots. His family has had an enormous impact on the greater Massachusetts area, and his uncle, John Hines, served three terms as mayor of Boston from 1950 to 1960. However, Tom has an incredibly unique connection to the story of Francis We Met and the We Met Fund. In 1989, Tom befriended the owners of Francis We Met's house at 246 Clyde Street in Brookline, where Tom lives just a few houses down. He famously said to them almost immediately after their introduction, when you're ready to sell your house, I'm your buyer. The neighbors answered that they were not selling anytime soon, but were curious why Tom was interested. He explained Francis We Met's history to them, and they were intrigued by his story. Then, many years later, the option to purchase came to fruition. Tom walked through the house for 30 minutes, and the rest was history. Hear the story of how Tom purchased, funded, and renovated this home, a standing example of American sports history, and more as we talk through Tom's extraordinary life. We hope you enjoy, and thanks for listening. I know you're in Boston, Tom, so then you're well aware of the fact that it's starting to warm up, and uh, maybe the clubs can stay out of the trunk or out of the garage, and and you can be back over playing in Massachusetts here soon, huh? That's absolutely correct. I'm actually sitting in the We Met Museum here at the golf house in Norton, Massachusetts. We're very much thinking of you and and the project you've been working on. Well, thank you. That's a great place to be sitting right now. And of course, uh, incredible tribute to you and all of the people involved in the We Met Fund and the incredible work that's been done for all the kids who've gone to college and secondary schools for thanks to the the academy work or working in golf clubs and an incredible organization for sure. That's very well said, Tom. And it really is wonderful to have you on. It's as fitting as anyone to be talking. We met with you and thank you for taking the time today. We have so much we want to cover with you from your time growing up in golf, your family history in Massachusetts, your incredible success in real estate in Boston for years. But due to the unique project that you've been working on in a full-time manner about five years now and part-time, certainly for a few decades, which we'll discuss, we thought it was most fitting to start with questions about your amazing work in securing, purchasing, renovating, and completing Francis We Met's childhood home, right across the street from the 17th hole at the Country Club. And you've had a decades-long passion to see Francis We Met's house become essentially a museum and a standing reminder of his legacy. So first and foremost, how did you come to be so enamored of the story of Francis We Met and the home he grew up in just a few doors away from your house? Well, I guess my first understanding of Francis We Met was the golf tags, you know, the bag tags. That kind of, you know, figured out, well, okay, that's Francis We Met. And he was, then I got involved in the story Along the way, I moved to Clyde Street uh, some years back, and uh, there's the We Met House at 246 Clyde Street, just a few doors down. So I thought someday, you know, that should be part of golf. So the We Met 
owners, and now the new owners, who bought the home from the Wimet family, Mr. and Mrs. Weiler, walked their dog by my home. And I'd be out watering the grass, and every once in a while, I'd say hello to them, but I really didn't know them. One day I said, you know, when you're getting ready to sell your house, I'm your buyer. And they were, to say they were shocked is an understatement. They were, you know, kind of offended. They said, we're not selling our house. I said, well, I know you're not selling it now, but someday you will. It might be five years from now or 10 years from now, but when you're ready, I'll be your buyer. And they, you know, quizzically frowned, and then they moved on, and that was the end of it. Maybe once a year I'd remind them. I'd see them several times a year, but once a year I'd remind them. But I never went to their house. I never bothered them. I never called them. And then to my amazement, one day Mr. Weiler was walking his dog by the house, same scenario, and said, Tom, if you're still interested, we're getting ready to sell our home. And I had a nanosecond to think about it. So I said, well, here you go. What did I tell you? I'm your buyer. When can we meet? Next day, we had a handshake in the living room, and that was the beginning of the odyssey. Wonderful couple. When they bought the house, they had no clue. They had no interest in golf, and they had no clue that it was, you know, anything about the we met story. But they will soon learn that it was a famous house because every once in a while, someone would walk on the knock on their door and ask if they could come in or could they take <laughs> pictures of the house. It was fitting that they uh, basically, thankfully, remembered me and posed the question. So that was the beginning. So from that point forward, you know, then I figured let's somehow get this back in the hands of golf. So I put an LLC together uh, to raise the money to pay for the house. And through the LLC, which now has over 50 members, we basically uh, purchased the house. We didn't pay for it all. and We financed it through Brookline Bank, but we put enough equity in it to get us going. And then we raised the money to do the renovation. So we did a full renovation not knowing ultimately how the house would be used, but it's fully up. Tom, can I just ask you? So, I mean, that was decades of not owning the house. I mean, the whole time that they would walk by and you'd see them once a year, did you always have the the renovation piece, the recreating the time period in your back of your mind? I know it went from you know securing and protecting and stewarding golf history, but then turning it back into the period piece with, you know, the project and the undertaking. Was it always a big project that you knew was going to be underway once you owned it? Well, I figured, you know, be careful what you ask for when you get (laughs) what you own and not what you do with it. But I think my first motivation was get control of the house, acquire it, and then go figure it out. So, you know, get control of it so you own it, then look at the different options. So that was how we basically figured out. By the way, when I first spoke to them, about the idea. And then when they actually said we're ready to sell, it was 20 years. It wasn't five years or 10 years. It was 20 years <laughs> because it was around the 99 Ryder Cup that I had the first discussion. And it was late 19, uh, 2019 when Mr. Weiler graciously stopped and said they were ready to sell. So it was a long wait. However, that's amazing. Once we get going, it happened to coincide with the coming up of the U.S. Open this past year at the country club. So the timing couldn't have been better because that kind of gave us a huge boost. Now, everybody was interested in the house, got a lot of publicity, got a lot of press. People from all during the open, people from all over the world were photographing it. Film crews showed up unannounced filming it. So it got a ton of press, not only locally, but actually globally. But figuring out how to basically renovate the house, it was a well-worn working man's house. It was in great shape, but it was to make it into the next generation, we basically had to put all new systems in place. 
So it was quite a project, including sprinkler systems and life safety systems, all new electrical, everything to make it usable for uh, multiple purposes. And ultimately, uh, once given your industry, Tom, you probably knew exactly where to go, no? Well, all these people that would need to be required to piece this whole project together. Well, I thought I did, but I soon found out it was a bigger project than I thought because it was the middle of COVID. And all of the subs and contractors were too busy to even talk to me. Architects were too busy to talk to me. We had a couple of outlandish proposals to do the work. And finally, we settled on a great solution. CBT Architects, one of the great architectural firms in Boston, they stepped up and did the architectural work. C.H. Newton, David Newton, who'd done many restorations of houses, uh, who was also very much involved in golf. He stepped up and basically not only provided the overall construction services, but he lined up all the subs and they also donated most of the furniture in the house because he had acquired uh, the Catherine Lee Bates house in Falmouth, which was, she wrote the style America the Beautiful. And he had restored that house to a 1900 style home. And then uh, when he sold it, all of the furnishings went in storage. So he essentially gave us the period furnishing for most of the house. Other members of the country club gave the remainder of the furnishings, such as a dining room set and a couple of bedroom sets. So we really didn't have to spend a lot of money furnishing. But essentially now it's in a great position so that it can be used at the drop of a hat. And uh, we have had some uh, events there. We had a nice event with the we met fund directors, the board and the executive committee of the country club. They had a nice reception there back a couple of months ago. We actually had three grand nieces of Francis we met stay there. They're now in their late 60s, early 70s. And they were just over the moon excited about staying at the house that they grew up in. So they lived in the house there. That's amazing. Yeah. And their grandmother, who was Francis's sister, lived in the house with them until uh, they ultimately sold the house. It's quite a journey. It's in good shape. We still have more work to do. We have to do the outside, which is to uh, put new windows in, which we have already paid for. And they're in the basement ready to be installed when we have the right combination of resources. Then the exterior, new cedar shingle roof and exterior siding, and then we're, we'll be done. It'll absolutely be a gem when it's really finished from the outside as well. It's already looking like a gem, honestly, Tom. But you had mentioned earlier so much of the media coverage and fascination started coming to the house, certainly, you know, in late 2021 and through, uh, you know, June of 2022. And there's a great piece on you and the We Met House at 246 Clyde Street in the New York Times, which I recommend everyone read. It, it's really fascinating. It came out right before the U.S. Open. And among you know many interesting parts of that story were you discussing sort of how you garnered support for the project, both within and outside of the community of the country club. And one thing you mentioned was that We Met alumni actually came to you publicly and privately wanting to support the project. So I'm curious, how did you manage piecing together the funding for this major undertaking? You know, how did you garner support from others, you know, for this project? Well, it was very much by word of mouth. I mean, I went around with a tin cup pretty much, but it was it was pretty much word of mouth. And when people heard the story, they if they were into golf, they got excited. And how can they help? So a lot of people said no, because it wasn't in their wheelhouse. But I had one member call me and said he heard about it. Could he contribute? Could he get involved? I said, sure. He said, well, what do you need? And I gave him a number. He said, fine, I'll do that. Do you have any other projects? I said, yeah, I do. I said, well, we've got a heating system. How much is that? He said, so I gave him that number. I said, wait a minute, this conversation is only three, five minutes old, and you're already in it for a bundle of money. What's the hook? 
He said, well, it's actually pretty simple. I've been fairly fortunate in business. I'm a we met scholar, and I would have not have gone to college but for Francis we met. So it's payback, simple as that. Wow. So it was about as good a story as you could get. And we've got other people like that who came out of the woodwork, some former we met caddies or scholars, some who just heard about it and contributed. But the bulk of it is members of the country club who gave in different increments. We still have some work to do and some money to raise to pay off the mortgage debt. We're in good shape. It's a great story. It's We're probably in the sixth inning now, not the ninth inning. Tom, those donors and country club members, we met alumni, those are some great surprises. I loved hearing the story. I mean, you texted me the day it happened. Tell me about the surprise so our listeners can understand the shock up in the attic. Uh, shock and awe, yeah, actually. I was in my home. Again, I'm down the street on 98 Clyde Street, and I get a call from the project manager. He said, you'll never believe this. He said, we just, a whole bunch of stuff just tumbled out from the attic. you got to come over here. I was there in two minutes. We had two young workers who were pulling out a, we're going to re-insulate the attic. And there was a shelf in the attic that was all nailed up tight as a drum. As they pulled it down, out tumbled a coconut, a Morse code heavy machine, and two golf clubs. So what is this? So two golf clubs, and they're ancient golf clubs. They're absolutely, for instance, we met vintage. There's no note or anything, but these are absolutely his vintage. So when the U.S. Open came to the USGA, came for the U.S. Open, they had, for instance, we met clubs from the museum, and they laid them out on the bed in his bedroom, along with the trophy. So I took the two clubs we had, put them side by side with Francis's. They're not from the same set, but they're absolutely the same vintage. So my guess, they have to be Francis's. Maybe they could be his brother. They certainly weren't his father. His father didn't play golf, or, as you know. My guess is that when they were sometime along the way, he put them up there and nailed them shut as sort of a time capsule. Unfortunately, there was no note, but we did solve the mystery of the coconut, and the three grand nieces had bought that coconut on their way to Florida one year when they were somewhere in the 1950s or early 60s. But I asked them, well, how did it get in the attic? No clue. So that's a mystery that'll never get solved. But <laughs> I have to think it certainly tied in with Francis Mumet and his legacy. It's funny. You never know what you're going to find in some of those old houses. And obviously, you guys yeah. found some pretty unique treasure in there, which is pretty cool. Uh, and your timing, Tom, couldn't have been better. You know, I know that the family coming to you willing to sell the house and, and the entire project being underway, but being well along the way when the U.S. Open came in 2022, tons of focus on that last year. You know, I'm curious, do you feel that your fellow members and other golfers you've interacted with throughout the state of Massachusetts and, and perhaps even the region, you know, have a better understanding of the importance of that home, you know, now that you've had the project going for you know, four or five years, but also the coverage from the USGA and the US Open last year? Oh, I think without a doubt. But I think it's more than that. I think it's long term. We're kind of at the beginning of the restoration of his house, but it'll be good for another 50 years anyway. <laughs> The work that's being done in the house and then his legacy as it just gets better and better with each passing year with all the kids you have going through your system. It's an important part of his overall legacy. And it's about time that maybe the house got some attention as well. Given your industry with commercial real estate, I'm just curious, I mean, how did this project, maybe there were some similarities, I'm sure there were some major differences with something, I mean, you have probably a passion in all your projects, but a little bit different here, as well as, you know, I'm sure the coding and that time period element. Talk us through, you know, similarities and differences between 50 years in real estate. 
kind of the difference here is that the decimal point, this is just as much, you can move the decimal <laughs> point over, and there would be just as much work. But the beauty is I look right down the street, so I'm in and out of there during the construction period, in and out of there, you know, easily a couple of times a day, tracking everything. And stuff was happening where things didn't show up. You know, like plaster didn't show up one day because there was no plaster in the system in the entire greater Boston area. The next day, those plasters were there. I said, what happened? He says, well, we didn't have enough to finish another job, but we had enough to do. We met house, so we picked up and came over here. We were fortunate that way. And as people get, they get vested, even if they didn't know anything about golf and they arrived at the house, they certainly knew a lot when they left and did their work. That was good. But the complications, you get a sense of how difficult it was for any project during COVID and getting, you know, work on, done on time and the pricing. Prices have gone haywire. It was threading the needle, which I think we did thanks to the incredible team we had in place. And I was just kind of steering the boat a little bit. That's all. It's been a great journey. And as I said, we're not done yet. Yeah, it's pretty cool the community you built around getting excited and passionate about that house. And again, it's an astounding project. One thing I've been curious about is going back, you know, it's now 110 years since Francis we met won the U.S. Open and, you know, he's lived there then. Can you take us back a little bit to what the house would have looked like in 1913, what the street looked like in 1913? What was the community living there at that time? Looking at some of the old photographs, the street was a dirt road. Oh, wow. And now it's almost a highway now and the cars go whipping by there at 15 miles an hour. But it was a dirt road and there was more lawn going out towards the, you know, it's right across from the 17th hole of the country club, but there was another 30 or 40 feet of lawn. That's gone. And there's a three-decker next to the uh, We Met house. That was a barn that went with the house. And Mr. We Met himself tore the barn down and built the three-decker. So everything is changed. And the house behind the house was several acres of meadow land. And that's where Francis and his brother set up their little golf course. They set up a three-hole golf course and, you know, just punched the clubs around, the ball around that little tiny course. And that was part of his, you know, beginning of golf. And by the way, he was using golf balls that he picked up out of the country club. They were errant balls. He certainly wasn't getting balls from active players, but stuff fell cutting, falling into the rough. And as you may know from the story, he walked from his house across the course to his school. And then he would pick up errant golf balls on the way home or either way. It was a very different setting in, you know, 1900 or 1910 or 1913 when he won the Open. But that house still remains, which is, of course, we're lucky to have it. Those are some great images and certainly thankful to you and the donors, the vendors, the volunteers and the media coverage for, you know, just, again, bringing light to the 1913 story and Francis and Eddie and Francis we met and his family. So thank you, Tom. I'd love to hear, you know, you obviously have a passion for golf. How did Tom Hines come to the game of golf? What are your earliest memories of golf in terms of family or friends that may have introduced you to that? Well, my very first experience in golf was a great one. I was a kid at, in Mattapoisett where we had a summer cottage. And my good friend Billy Hoy and I played at Marion, at Little Marion. And we'd hitchhike down Route 6 with our bag of clubs. And we probably had four clubs. We'd play Little Marion, the nine-hole course, which has since been acquired by Will Fulton and a team and being restored. But a great experience in golf. Carefree is good in the world. We didn't have a care in the world and we were playing golf as kids. And that was a great experience. 
I think I may have told you about my caddy experience, which was <laughs> another experience, but a little different. And another good friend, and I, this is Boston, of course, I grew up in West Roxbury, and my good friend Tom Kelly encouraged me to go caddying with him and his older brother. We went to a nice municipal golf course, and I didn't know a thing about caddying whatsoever. I know a little bit about playing golf, but not a thing about the caddying. And the client I had was miserable. He berated me for nine, 18 holes, and he didn't tip me at all. And I got paid maybe a minimum dollar or two, whatever it was. I was furious because I'd been totally uh, humiliated in the experience. But he was kind of right. I didn't know a thing about what I was supposed to be doing. So I told Tom Kelly, I said, I'll never caddy again. And I didn't. Now, in a way, that gentleman did me a favor because from that point forward, I've when I started playing golf seriously, I realized that a good caddy can make any golfer a better golfer. And for the young caddies, I've always looked at, you know, when I play alone, I asked for the junior caddy. So and I'll tell them in the beginning of the round, you know, I'm going to give you some hints and some coaching along the way. I'm not criticizing you. I'm trying to help you to become a better caddy. So and I've done that many, many, many times. So I've always had respect, whether it's a junior caddy at that age or a senior caddy who's doing two loops of carrying two bags twice a day. And, you know, some of the senior caddies are just incredibly good as to what they do. So respect them because they can really help you be a better golfer. That's right. And while your caddying story is unique, it certainly came full circle for you and that you now know how to mentor these caddies and how to treat them well and, and respect what it is they do. It's very important, you know, what they do. I know I always love taking the caddy whenever I get a chance, but you were telling us before you had just come back from a nice golf trip with your family. And we know that playing with your family has been something very meaningful to you over the years, whether it's with your son or your grandchildren. It's something we hear about often. What are some of the highlights of your time and years on the course with them? I'll start with my son, Todd, first of all, when he was eight and nine years old and seven, eight, nine years old, that kind of era. I'd play with him and we'd play Primrose at the country club and I'd use, kind of tricked him. I'd said his best shot, his best round, his best drive, whatever. I'd give him a little prize or a token. And I have them. They're golf balls in Lucite that I've saved for him. I found one of them that it showed up on the fourth row hold of the Primrose. He had a 198-yard drive when he was 10, 11. Yeah, that was pretty cool. So playing with him was a lot of fun. And even just this last week, I was down in Lost Tree where we play. I was playing with my now 10-year-old grandson, who's a hockey player first and a golfer second. He wore me out. We were on the course for 10 hours. We played nine holes. He had a lesson, and he hit 700 balls. I did the math. He hit 700 balls. Whoa. He's driving the ball 150 to 180 yards as a 10-year-old and striping it right down the middle. Not very good out of the bunkers, but just <laughs> loving it. What a great family. But the highlight with him was actually on his ninth birthday, we we're playing at Woods Hole. After five holes, he said, I'm, Papa, I'm tired. I want to go in. So look, the next hole's up par three. You might get a hole in one. So we tee it up. Off he goes. He drives on over the green, which is only 110 yards, but nice shot right over the green. And I hit when I hit a high drawer, and I figured, oh, it's going right into the left bunker, hole in one. And he, hole in one, he is the happiest kid in the universe, a 10-year-old. Of course, he thinks it's easy to hit a hole in one. And we're on the tee, rolling around, laughing and screaming. And people are, you know, in the other holes, and the, finishing the second hole or teeing off on the sixth, on the third hole, everybody stops. And they were really cheering him, not me. So, but that was certainly one of the highlights. And I don't know how you could ever duplicate that. Anybody, you know, that was a lot of fun. 
those are great memories. And obviously, a lot of times we don't even look at the scorecard unless we, you know, make a hole in one or something like that. But you have been had some competitive matches, and you know, I know one of your closest friends and a playing partner over the years was someone very close to the We Met community, a huge supporter. BC Hall of Fame hockey player, Olympian, Tom Red Martin. And, you know, for those yes. who don't know Tom, tell us a little bit about him as a person, a golfer, as well as what he meant to you as a partner. Tom Red Martin and I were classmates at BC. Of course, he was a wonderful athlete at BC in hockey. One of his hockey games, he played 58 minutes at one of the Beanpot games. 58 minutes as a defenseman. Jeez. The reason he didn't play 60 minutes Incredible. was because he was in the phone, he was in the penalty box for two <laughs> minutes. Other than that, he was on the ice the whole game. Nice. Great golfer, very competitive golfer, and a teammate with me playing the Squirrels for, yeah, I think, 25 years at the country club. We had a great relationship. Of course, he left us too early, but just the ultimate sportsman. He was very patient with me because I'm all over the lot, you know, I'm hitting it rough, the right rough, maybe getting down in the middle once in a while. But he was as gentle and as pleasant, and he basically was a great partner and great mentor for me and a huge friend. And he did so much for golf in all his years, very close to the We Met Fund. And, of course, all his kids, if you put them all together, I think the combined handicap was like 10, you know, like four of them. The grandchildren are playing now and just an incredible legacy for golf and sports and a great human being. Amen. Going back, Tom, to you growing up in Massachusetts, we can start where it began. You had a large and fairly traditional Irish family growing up. I believe your grandparents were from Galway. Your parents were first-generation Irish-American. You had a number of siblings. But speaking of losing someone too soon, you sadly lost your father at a young age. And if you can, can you talk us through that, the impact of that on you, your mother, your siblings, with your father's passing, and how you, you, know, you and your family rallied together after that tragedy? Thank you. Well, I was nine. My father died at a young age with cancer victim. My mother was young. She was in her mid-30s with five kids, two older sisters, two younger brothers. I was in the middle we had great extended family support, but I asked my mother many years later, we all worked, everybody worked multiple jobs, everybody went to college, everybody worked. I asked her many years later, how did you do it? She said, I did it. That's all you have to know. <laughs> so, so, that's how stern and how great it was growing up in our family. But it was certainly difficult times, but we never realized it was difficult. We basically, everybody worked hard and worked multiple jobs and it was great. I had two extended family in my family, two great uncles who were wonderful mentors and golfers. So one was my uncle Henry, my mother's brother. My recollection with him is that he would be in the newspaper every New Year's because he'd be playing at, not Wollaston, but Furnace Brook. On January 1, he and his friends would have a beef stew open and they would play golf. And as long as it wasn't snowing, they'd be in the newspaper the following day. And then my uncle John, who was a member of, of Wollaston, an avid golfer, and John Hines, John B. Hines, mayor of Boston, by the way, first generation. His father came from Ireland, and then his son, the grandfather from Ireland, and then the son becomes mayor of Boston in one generation. Pretty cool. But he was an avid golfer, and those were kind of my idols as a kid growing up. They looked after us as a family, and so we had a lot of family support. But it was still, you know, different when all of your other friends had two parents, and we had one, so... But we did well. Tom, you mentioned your uncle John Hines there and legendary mayor, three terms in the 50s, mayor of Boston. You initially were considering following in his footsteps to go into politics, right? What initially drew you in that direction, even if you didn't end up totally landing there? Uh, well, it was a good experience. So let's put it that way. 
Well, it was the Kennedy years. He was mayor of Boston at the end. He was mayor through 1960. But that was, you know, the Kennedy years. I, he told me not to go into politics, not to go into law, go into the real estate business and because he was sort of my mentor. And I was determined to be uh, go to law school and go to somehow get in politics. And I went back to two years in the Army after BC. And then the day I got back, I started law school at BU. And he said, by the way, if you can't go to Harvard Law School, don't bother, you know, because you can't get into the big firms, which was maybe true at the time unless you were a brilliant student. And he said, look, besides, you're not that smart. You know, you're... <laughs> just an average student. Nonetheless, I go to law school and finish my first year. And then at the end of the first year, I go back to my summer job, which was demolition, working with the John J. Duane Company. And we were knocking down the West End, which is a whole other story, and then the government center. And we're working in the government center. And I'm now processing, you know, here I am. I'm on the brick pile with a hard hat and a sledgehammer and an acetylene torch. And my all my competitors, or my contemporaries, rather, if they didn't have to win the service, they finished business school or they're midway through law school or they're two now three years into their business careers, and I've got a hard hat on. So I'm thinking, why don't I double down and run for state representative at the same time? I'll finish law school and I'll already be reelected and I'll go on and start my career. Well, as I'm processing this, a fellow next to me gets killed. Read the bulldozer driver. Off the roof he went and died. And I said, that's it. I am Jeez. done in the building wrecking business. I am going to run. So I went in to see my uncle, who is now state banking commissioner, and told him my plans. And he said, I told you not to go to law school. Now you want to run for office? He said, well, not a good idea. You're going to lose. What do you mean I'm going to lose? I know how to run a campaign. I've done all this. He said, look, you're running against two freshman reps. They haven't done anything wrong. What makes you think you can beat them? I said, well, I'm going to try he said, well, good luck. He gave me a check for $100, and off I went. But he said, remember what I told you. Think about the real estate business. After a three-month campaign, you know, I end up finishing runner-up. So I was third out of 12 or 13 candidates. You might as well have been 33rd. Didn't matter. You didn't win. So now I'm back to see Uncle John. I don't have any money to go back to law school. I've got a campaign debt. He says, so what do you think of the real estate business now? Well, it was like a light bulb going on because I realized, you know what? The last three months, I've been knocking on doors, asking for votes. I can do that in business. And the real estate business was a perfect match. So thanks to him, uh, he helped me open some doors for me and uh, landed at Marathon Grew, and I've never looked back. So it was a wonderful career, and I thank him eternally for the guidance he gave me. A few rough knocks on the way, but I deserve them. <laughs> so It sounds like he was, at the end of the day, he was a smart man and he had some good advice for you. We certainly great. want to ask you about your amazing career in real estate. I'm honestly curious, you know, going back to your younger years, maybe into your teenage years, what was it like having your uncle be the mayor of Boston? Like, were you visiting his office? Did it seem normal to you or were you aware of kind of how unique that was? Well, the fun part of it was when we were kids, you know, we were young teenagers He'd come out for uh, Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas or whatever. And at that time, the mayor, no matter who it was, had a limo. So a big Cadillac stretch limo. So we'd pile all the kids in the neighborhood and go for a joyride <laughs> with the driver. So we'd have 10 or 15 kids in the car driving around West Roxbury raising hell. <laughs> so that was kind uh, of it. But on the serious side, it was the crossover was the Kennedy years. And it was really exciting at that time to, to see both ends of it, to sing you know, a native son become president of the United States and to be in the Boston Guard the night of that victory with May Hines on the stage with Jack Kennedy and the rest of the Boston and Massachusetts politicians. And that was a nice segue to 
how fun politics could be. Tom, you've certainly had a remarkable career in real estate for more than five decades. Now you're co-chairman of Collier's International Boston, widely respected. Having you on the line, you know, talking to someone with the expertise, I'd just be curious to ask and learn from you. It's 2023, it's March. What do you see upcoming for Boston in the real estate with some trends? I think it's a great city, and I've always thought that, and it's been an incredible growth of this marketplace over the years that I've been in the business from a period where companies were leaving the city and the city was losing population to a point now where with the epicenter of life sciences in the U.S. and one of the principal epicenters in the world between or amongst the various colleges and universities, plus the NIH grants, we have this incredible confluence of intellectual capital and capital dollars and the educational institutions that all fit together to help move that part of the economy forward. So that's been a huge part of what we've seen in the quality of life in the city. Just think of the cleanup of the Boston Harbor, the seaport, millions of feet, square feet of space being developed in the seaport. That would not have happened without the big dig, which opened up the access with the Third Harbor Tunnel and interchange right there in the seaport, the silver line going through there. That's allowed access. And then renovation of over 50 buildings that were the Boston Wharf portfolio, and those have all been converted to a variety of uses, including residential. So the market's changed, and you know, we every day there's something new, like the banking crisis happening over the last few weeks. But long term, this is a great city and a great environment, and the combination of not just Boston, but the environments of greater Boston, the Cape going one direction and the Berkshires and then New Hampshire, Maine, Vermont on the other. We're in a great overall environment. So it's been a real pleasure and treat to be a little part of a great big picture. So, Tom, I know you began playing golf in the 40s and 50s. What have you seen change between that time and now in 2023 about the people who are making up the golfing community, not just in Massachusetts, but throughout the country? And I know you play all over the place. Have you seen more, you know, a wider group of people getting involved, a little more diversity in the game? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, it was a men's game for so many years. They used to have ladies' days at golf courses. Believe that? You know, that the diversification, you know, young kids playing golf, the diversity. I was at an event just this past week where Rory McIlroy was there and Seth Waugh, president of USGA, and then Jay Monahan, I guess, PGA. And they stressed the minorities and kids getting involved in golf and having much more diversification in the game and bringing it to many more people. And if all the stats are up, and the stats are loaded at the bottom end with new people playing, which is all great. There's some great ambassadors in the game of golf right now. Absolutely right. By the way, I didn't play in the 40s. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know when you, when, when, when you started playing the 50s. Okay. The 50s, just before the 54 hurricane. Tom, this has been fantastic. I think I just want to say on behalf of the WeMet community, the WeMet staff, board of directors, the work that you've done and you're continuing to do at 246 Clyde Street at Francis WeMet's house, it's amazing. And on a personal level, just walking through that house and seeing where he grew up, it helped me you know, connect a little bit more with the story. And I know it has with many of our board of directors, many donors and alumni and those at the country club and elsewhere. So thank you for the work that you've done. It's an amazing project. And we're really looking forward to seeing the finished, finished product. I know it's very close now. Just one final note, if some of your new scholars want a quick visit to the house with their parents, just give me a call and I'll give them a tour, okay? Thank you, Tom. Yeah, I appreciate all you're doing to enhance Francis's legacy, legacy of the property, and it's a special connection that the We Met Fund now has with it. So thank you. Okay, thank you. All the best. <laughs>